broadcasting live from a transmitter, a radio for talking to pod. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm your other host, Garrett Strother. And as we cover Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom for part one of our Indiana Jones series this week, we have brought on top men (laughs) to talk about these movies with us. Experts, our personal friend, Sean from the Sean Till Dusk YouTube channel. I will let him introduce himself. Sean, it is great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on today. It's great to be here. I'm ready to talk about some Indiana Jones. I am very excited to talk Indiana Jones with you, something we have definitely never done before, ever, once in our lives. Talk about of course Indiana not. <laughs> never in all these years. Oh, but now it's on the record, boys. You can't you can't take anything back after this one. All of your indie opinions will be out there for the world to hear. Held against me. <laughs> I, oh, I hope so. But before we get into the man with the hat and the whip, we've got to talk about a couple pieces of news here, starting off with the passing of legendary author and bucker of any kind of writing grammatical convention, Cormac <laughs> McCarthy, has passed away. Some of his most well-known works, of course, include The Road and No Country for Old Men, which were also famously adapted into films he also wrote blood meridian which i feel like that's the book of his i hear talked about the most not in the context of adaptations of his work Mm. mccarthy is an author i certainly find interesting i don't know how much i enjoy reading his work but i certainly like a lot of the stories he's telling i probably like the adaptations of his work more than i actually like the work that he wrote, but that doesn't take anything away from the text and how interesting some of his kind of frustrating grammatical tics are. I remember reading The Road far too young and being absolutely disturbed by it. And to this day, it is one of my, you know, it is one of the golden pieces of post-apocalyptic fiction that I, I hold really dear the movie was also, you know, incredibly disturbing. Very, I mean, I still like the movie a lot, but something like No Country for Old Men, a, a book that was written to be adapted into a film, basically. Like, he wrote it to be a script, and that's why that is one of the most wonky books to, like, read cover to cover. I think that's incredibly fascinating, and I, I still love No Country for Old Men as a film, as a Cohen film. A really scary piece of media that... Oh, yeah. You could tell how much... McCarthy's text had an influence on every decision that is made throughout that film. His DNA is squarely in that film as much as the Coens is. But up next on our small little news docket, we have the very, very exciting announcement of Star Wars Outlaws, a newly announced Ubisoft open world Star Wars video game coming in 2024. I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, that's, I mean, question mark aside, I I would love to see it sooner than later, but the two trailers that we got for this have me so hyped, guys, that they could take as many years as they want as long as they do not mess this one up. This one is vital that they do not screw this up because it looks phenomenal to me. Sean, you are an avid Star Wars fan, and I believe that you've played a fair amount of Star Wars video gaming 
and your time. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, on these couple of trailers. Well, I must say that much of my Star Wars gaming experience is uh, relegated to the prequel era, but I have played the new versions of Battlefront and Jedi Fallen Order. I did notice that there were some similarities in some of the gameplay, like, you know, the idea of having a secondary character that's, like, kind of always on your back that appears to help you out and open stuff up. You know, I see some similar Hmm. mechanics like that. It looks like an exciting game. Seems like they've got some similar sort of things that they've had like that, but then they're also bringing in some new elements. It seems like it is implied, at least, that it's sort of open world, you know, because in the trailer, they're like, oh, we can go wherever we want. And then, you know, it shows all those planets. That would be pretty cool if that is how that ends up being. The end of that gameplay trailer where they go straight from gunfight to speeder chase to getting in your ship to going to light speed and then landing on another planet, that's pretty crazy. Oh man, that is the thing that has has me the most excited about this project. That is like what I've been dreaming of in a Star Wars game. Open world or not, like even if it's smaller, more contained areas on any given planet, just that fluidity is is a dream to me. And I'm so happy to see it finally implemented in something that, I mean, this looks like it would be a day one purchase for me if I wasn't, you know, wary of Ubisoft and also (laughs) buying video games on the first day that they come out. I have finally um, started playing Jedi Survivor this <laughs> however many months it's been because I'm like, okay, they finally fixed most of the bugs. Oh, thank God. Thank goodness gracious you're finally back on it. But we'll see if you have enough time to run a platinum on that before this comes out. I mean, this looks like it's going to be so vast. I, I love the commando battle droid companion that Sean Yu, I think, were just referencing. That guy looks like he's going to be a lot of fun. It's swashbuckling. It's like Red Dead and... Uncharted seeming gameplay, a lot of stealth, a lot of, you know, wall climbing things throughout that gameplay Ubisoft demo trailer. Have us climbing walls. I know. I mean, isn't that just absolutely <laughs> stunning? Oh, what a time I, I to be wait. alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to do, you get to climb walls, but you have a little alien dog thing that's with you, a cat thing that's with you, whatever that that little Bebo is that I'm, I'm excited to. Bebo. Yeah, it's, they're definitely going to do a fake out where that thing, it looks like it's going to die and it's going to be like the most intense moment of that game. Ah, it's going to be wonderful. Well, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Sean, that I was a little surprised. I mean, how many different ways can you skin a Star Wars loath cat? You know, at first it kind of seemed like it was going to be pretty similar, you know, to a lot of other games that they've released over the last few years. Not that that's a bad thing. They've produced plenty of, you know, great content. But mm-hmm. you're right, at the end, it really, it really seemed like it showed that they're going to expand it, you know, into places that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I thought that the dogfighting looked incredibly like Battlefront 2, specifically yeah, it did. Battlefront 2. <laughs> oh, it yeah. really did. I'm a little wary of that, but having just played Assassin's Creed Black Flag and Assassin's Creed Rogue, if they can sprinkle a little of that onto the traversal and combat of going to space in this really cool, boxy, personal starship that we have in this game, I'm 100% ready for it already, and I'm already getting ahead of myself. If I can fly into the enemy flagship and blow up their shield generator from inside with time bombs, I will be happy. Oh my god, we'll never recapture that OG Battlefront 2 days. We have to leave it behind. Star Wars Red Dead, I'm here for it. Yeah, it's gonna be the best. But without any further ado, I think it's time to hop from one good Han Solo Lucasfilm franchise to another. I said Han Solo and not Harrison Ford (laughs) because that's where my brain's at. But let's talk indie 
in his first two adventures that don't count the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Ooh, let's do it, boys! For today's main segment, we are taking a look at the first two Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones Adventures, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Temple of Doom. Two interesting movies to watch back to back, if I'm being honest, in in terms of our four that we're covering in the in the next couple weeks here. But some of the best action adventure cinema ever made. Is that too premature to say? I I love these movies so dearly, and I would love to know what you guys think. Do we do spoilers for a, a 35-year-old movie? I, Is I, that think, what... I think we start non-spoilers, especially because, you know, I want I want to hear Sean's background, because the people yes, on the podcast, they know idea. what we think about Indiana Jones. But Sean, I would love to hear what your <laughs> background and experience and relationship with Indiana Jones, specifically Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom, is. Right, right, of course. So, as Garrett implied earlier, growing up, I was a big Star Wars kid. Of course, you know, all Star Wars kids also like Indiana Jones. If you were to look at my Lego sets, I have way more Lego Star Wars sets. But proportionally, I have probably almost all of the Lego Indiana Jones sets from back in the day. So percentage-wise, I think I'm higher there. Also, when I was a kid, Lego Indiana Jones, you know, the first one... The original trilogy, if you will, is the only one of the Lego games that I actually got 100% completion on. Wow. Like, as a kid. The rest of them, I mean, like, during the shutdown, I did Lego Star Wars, but, you know, I was, like, in my 20s by then, so I would hope I would be able to do that. (laughs) I don't know, that Endor speeder bike chase, man, I don't know if I could do that now. Yeah, but do you know how much time I had spring of 2020? (laughs) That's fair. Big Indiana Jones fan. I grew up with these movies. My parents loved these movies, so we watched them all the time, particularly Raiders and The Last Crusade. But, you know, Temple of Doom always snuck in there, too. I have had a very complicated relationship with Temple of Doom for my entire life. It's the last Indiana Jones film I was permitted to see, which I don't think is a surprise to anyone, because holy crap, (laughs) that's quite a movie. But... One of the pleasures lately that I've been experiencing, and I think, Seamus, you and I have talked about this a little bit on air, is I don't know if I turned 25 and my brain just decided it was fully developed or what, but lately I've been revisiting childhood favorites and seeing them in a completely new light in a way that makes me appreciate them in the dozens of times I'd seen them before that I I hadn't originally. And Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom, well, one, Raiders is... Perfect. I think it's maybe one of the most perfect movies ever made. It's so fun and so perfectly paced, and the story is airtight, and the characters are so great, and it's so well shot. We'll get into all of that in a minute. But Temple of Doom, a movie that I had not watched, you know, really that long ago, maybe a year, year and a half, I got a lot more out of it this time. And it, it certainly has its warts, but... There are parts of this movie that I think are almost franchise highs, and I'm very excited to get into that a, li- a little bit deeper, but I was surprised rewatching for the show how-, how much I got out of the Temple of Doom. Well, I, similarly to you, both grew up Star Wars, grew up Indiana Jones. I had the trilogy VHS box sets of both, and I would just pretty much switch off between them, you know, depending on how I felt that day. I've always loved the Indiana Jones films. One thing that I did not remember until this rewatch for this episode, though, is how gory and graphic the violence for both of these movies are. 
I definitely remember, you know, Temple of Doom was lower on the list growing up, and my mom was definitely like, that's the one that you have to, like, cover their eyes for. Various things are pulled out of various places with bare hands that need not to have children watch that. You, you, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty up there, but even Raiders itself, famously shocking in the violence that is shown in the climax, it's so normalized for me that it was truly shocking to go revisit here after having not seen Raiders for a long, long time. I think let's just go ahead and call spoilers. Most people have seen Raiders of Lost Ark and Temple of Doom. Do we want to call spoilers for the other two, just in case we're bringing things up? Probably. I, I think we must. There's so much weird stuff in these movies that kind of play <laughs> off each other. I think it's worth it. Well, that is spoilers for Indiana Jones 1 through 4, Raiders, Temple, Last Crusade, and Crystal Skull. Garrett, before you continue, I just have to uh, acknowledge what a moment this is for me to hear you formally acknowledge that there are four Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> oh, goodness. I remember like in high school, you would always be like, yep, Temple of Doom sure is the weakest of the three <laughs> Indiana Jones movies that exist. Oh, I can see you doing that, Garrett, but I, I will get into this more next week. I will defend Crystal Skull to my grave, damn you. I have not seen Crystal Skull in, it's gotta be 15 years. It's gotta be 15 years since I've seen Crystal Skull. And so I'm very interested to see coming, because there's a lot of movies that I didn't used to like very much from around that time. I'm looking at you, Avatar. (laughs) <laughs> that I, I mean, I don't think I'm going to come around on it as much as Avatar, but sometimes just seeing a, quote, old-fashioned blockbuster that, you know, Steven Spielberg, dude, is a director. He you knows know what, what he's saying? doing out yeah. there, for sure. So I, I am very curious to see where I end up landing on Crystal Skull next week, because who knows, maybe I'll, I mean, I don't think I'll come around on it. I think it's still going to be the worst of the series and all that, but... <laughs> You we'll know, see. I think I might like it better than I than I used to. I'm in a very similar situation. I don't think I've seen it maybe since, like, the theater. That's possible. Wow. And if not, then right around then. We're three little peas in a pod because I can't remember the last time I saw Crystal Skull. But it is going to be a thrill to revisit and maybe just absolutely dog on for three people at once. So, yes, with Crystal Skull counted as an official Indiana Jones movie... That is not probably the first time I've admitted that on on air, but it's close to, I would suspect. <laughs> That's um, the first time I've heard it, and I'm almost moved to tears, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dig into Raiders, boys. Raiders of the Lost Ark is incredible. It's just like I continually had my mind blown over and over again watching it, like trying to put myself in the perspective of, what if I went and saw this in a movie theater today? Like for the first time? I kept yeah. doing the same thing. As children, we obviously didn't understand how important that movie is, but seeing it now and just trying to put myself in that brand new clean mindset, it is pure gold. It's incredible. My heart was pumping. My reactions were so legit. Out loud, watching this movie, rubbing my fingers together with Alfred Molina, but like not joking, <laughs> being like, this is so intense. What is he going to do with that bag of sand? Like, I don't know. It was, oh, it was amazing. The thing that has always really drawn me to Indiana Jones is, I mean, the adventure, obviously. I'm not going to sit here and be like, actually, it's the character work. But I love <laughs> how sleazy Indy is. And that's something that I think, we'll get to this next week, Last Crusade waters that down. Last Crusade makes him a little bit more of an altruist. And the argument could be made that the, the character arc that he goes over the course of Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is maybe responsible for that. 
So I'm not going to say it's bad character writing in Last Crusade, but I do love how much of an unapologetic scumbag he is in these first couple movies. He's fighting so dirty. He's throwing sand in people's faces. Yeah, dude. Oh. He's faking he, being hurt just to sucker punch a Nazi. He, he is uh, having questionable relationships with very young Marion Ravenwood. Yeah. I never remember him feverishly selling artifacts to Marcus in the beginning. Like, oh, will, will the museum take this? Huh? What about this? I got to get a plane ticket, Marcus. Come on. And he's like, nah, don't worry, junkie Indiana Jones. Like, we know you're going off to discover more stuff. We'll buy him from you. Yeah, that whole angle is definitely something you don't notice as a, <laughs> as a young kid, you know. The juxtaposition of Professor Jones and getting people killed in the jungle, chartering, like, weird triple agents working for Belloc. He's so handsome, I can't blame any of those students for being, like, super hot for teacher in this instance, <laughs> but... In that class, it's, like, all ladies, and then there's, like, the one dude that's in there <laughs> just, like, actually trying to learn about archaeology. He's like, he's dropping off an apple at his desk at the <laughs> yeah. end of that class. Like, he's going to remember who the hell that was compared Cle to all these babes. I've always read that as he's clearly trying to talk about a grade and Marcus is just grade blocking him. He's just like, <laughs> no, sorry, we got to talk about Indiana Jones's feverish need for more trinkets. For cash, cash for artifacts, the Indiana Jones story. He's just selling that stuff, man. Imagine what a bad professor Indiana Jones would be. Like, he's probably skipping classes all the time, canceling class nonstop. Read, read like 18 chapters for next <laughs> week's class, and then you try to go to his office. He's never in his office hours, dude. No, you, you try to go to his office, and then he sneaks out the window, and you never see him again. Then he goes off to Venice. There's a line that he does say with Marcus and Raiders about, like, of course, the university will like cover your time off or whatever but I was like yeah if I was a student in his class I'd be pissed off I really would be pissed off you think even grades papers you think he just gives everybody like a B plus he gives everybody a B plus and then he covers his eyes with his hat and falls asleep half sitting up <laughs> that's his vibe <laughs> We got the government here telling him to, to get going, so maybe that has something to do with him getting off time from the university. The government's just like, hey, the Nazis are up to some bad stuff, Indiana Jones. Go, go at it. It's been said a million times, but that's a great example of a scene that is only exposition that is just shot so well and acted so engagingly that it just works that scene must be five pages right that's a long oh, you, scene you mean them all in the lecture hall and he's like describing what the arc is yep i love that stuff i never remember how much i love those government guys too they're like weirdly demanding but also very clueless at a certain point it's a it's a fun time with those guys these are scenes, you know, when I was a kid, oh, it's the part where they're at this, the college <laughs> talking, but now I'm able to understand, you know, how great those really are, the complexity of, you know, what they're talking about, the little nuances, you, know, you were just saying, the government guys, that dynamic that they have, that stuff that you can really appreciate now. Exactly. I was so over, starting with the boulder and the golden idol and the shot of him running over the hill with the tribe behind him. Like, that is so incredibly exciting. And then you cut to the college stuff, and I, like, checked out. But watching it now as an adult, just the line of, didn't you guys go to Sunday school? Tickles me so much. Just the <laughs> way that he delivers that. I uh, I couldn't ever skip it. I also, when I was a kid, kind of thought even the boat stuff. I mean, that's textbook adventure, but... Towards the end of the film, I even thought the boat stuff was boring, and now I love it. The whole 
weird political interplay between the Nazis and Captain Katanga. Oh, dude, I love Captain Katanga. He's so he's he should be in every Indiana Jones movie, which is a thing I will say about nearly every side character in Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. They listen to you. I mean, there's a again, we can't get into Last Crusade, <laughs> not, but not yet. They did they did listen to you, Shavis. I wanted Belloc to be, like, a running villain. I wanted him to be, like, the nemesis that they treat him as in Raiders. But I'm sure they go into that more in in the Young Adventures. Let's say you're 15 years old in 1981. Or just any general moviegoer. This is a movie that's being advertised as the culmination of a partnership between the creative minds between Jaws and Star Wars, the two biggest movies ever at that point. And this movie lives up to that hype. I do not think there's ever been a movie that has probably had that level of gas behind it that really does fulfill its promise as much as Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's pure adventure. It's excitement from start to finish, even as we were just saying... Even the college stuff, even the sl- slow it down on the boat, you know, have some slapstick thrown in there that you never really remember until it happens. It is one of the perfect films, and I, it's kind of crazy that, like, it's Star Wars, Jaws, and Raiders. If I were to make a top five list, they would probably all land on there, and it's <laughs> like the creative minds of two dudes, more or less, that are that are given the credit for that. It, it is mind-boggling. Have either of you guys ever listened to, you can also read transcripts of them, they're these cassette tapes from hours of conversations that Lucas Spielberg and the screenwriter for this film, Lawrence Kasdan, sat down and just talked about what they wanted Indiana Jones to be. And you can hear Spielberg casually just being like, you know, what if, you know, what if there was like a boulder or whatever? Like just, you know. (laughs) That is incredible. I've never heard of this before. It's like in that Beatles documentary, Get Back, where you just casually hear Paul riff out Get Back, and you're like, dude, that's Get Back. Do you not know you just wrote Get Back? It's, it's just the Leo these DiCaprio. legendary, iconic cultural icons that are just, like, random ideas being thrown out. Totally. That, if it could be that easy, one day someone's going to listen back to this podcast. <laughs> the idea of just, like, what if there's, like, a scumbag cowboy doctor who, get, who gets chased by a rock? That makes no sense, but it is, <laughs> it is cinema, boys. It is some of the most exciting things to this day. I don't even care that it makes no sense as a trap in general. Watching how good that giant boulder looks and watching Harrison Ford leap face first, like dangerously looking, leaping face first through like rocks and spiderwebs. It's the best thing I've ever seen. It's, it's, I want to listen to those tapes. I would like to read the transcripts, but I want to hear the inflection of how much they are throwing out the most iconic things of all time like it's nothing. Like, that sounds so fun to me. Oh, then there's, like, George Lucas, you know, the creator of Star Wars to this day, calling them laser swords. You know, like, just <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lucas is so funny because he just so clearly doesn't really care. He's got a lot of ideas, and he is passionate about them. But the way he tells it is he brings this character, this James Bond-esque character, to Spielberg, and he's like, 
I got this guy, he's named Indiana Smith. And Spielberg's like, I don't like Smith. And he's like, okay, I got Indiana Jones, I guess. <laughs> like, Indiana Smith, it doesn't work, though. I agree. Indiana jo- Indiana Smith? That's that's lame, dude. I do want to talk about, again, rediscovering this film. One of the great pleasures is Karen Allen's performance. I've always liked Marion. She's always been an entertaining character. But this time around, I was really appreciating how much work she's doing. Especially, Seamus, you alluded to their unsavory origins of their relationship where it's pretty explicitly said that she was a teenager and he was an adult when they became originally romantically entangled. How much she is always kind of thinking about Jones and how their relationship is evolving over time and it's like they're meeting each other for the first time as real adults and not a young woman who's being taken advantage of. She's doing such a good job that first iconic shot of Indy's silhouette coming into the bar, looming oh. over her, and she comes and steps forward in frame and becomes the same size as that silhouette, taking that power dynamic back. That's such efficient storytelling, and she does such a good job in it. Incredible. Every single thing in Nepal, basically, at Ravenwood's bar, the drinking contest, the gunfight in the bar where she's involved, her reluctance to give Indy what he wants, maybe because of her spite, maybe because of her longing to maybe reconnect with him in some way, and like weighing those feelings against a really big payday to keep her and her independent self going in her Nepali bar. It's masterful. I definitely never gave her enough credit growing up watching this it was obviously all about staring at indiana jones punching nazis but she is killing it in this movie and i'll never think lesser of that role again i don't think i I, my eyes are now opened having revisited this that just speaks to the depth of this movie because it is definitely like an iconic 80s action movie but it's got so much more depth to the characters more than a lot of those other kinds of movies that you know really makes this one stand out something i picked up on watching it this time that I'd always been really taken with... You guys probably have this movie memorized and can play it in your brain like I can. (laughs) (laughs) There's a shot when Indy's leaving the bar before the Nazis come. As the wind howls and the door slams shut behind him, looking back, his eye is perfectly centered in this grill, decorative in the door, and the light is hitting it just right. It's such a mystical cool shot and it's clearly echoing a little bit you know the headpiece of the staff of Rahi's after this this crystal that gleams light through it that's a shot that's always really struck me and I was trying to think about and unpack what that meant and I was really paying attention and that kind of shot is echoed several times throughout the movie and I never noticed that before And I think that that's a really cool visual thing that Spielberg is doing. And I don't know how intentional it is, but it's there if you look for it. Then later, after Marion dies, quote unquote, right before the bad dates scene, (laughs) he's looking out this similar door, actually, to the one in The Raven. And again, his eye is framed up right in there with the little spotlight on it. And then later again... When they get to the island at the end, he's watching her through this net rope. Again, his eye is centered in the negative space of the net. And then finally, at the end of the film, when he's all dejected after Porkins and the other guy have taken away (laughs) the ark and, and locked it up, he's looking down and looking away from her, and she 
brings up the brim of his fedora, his his business fedora, not his Indiana Jones-like fedora. The light is cast through her fingers. The shadows of her fingers go around his eye, and his eye is once again in the light, and this time he's looking up at her for good. And that's basically the last thing that he does in the movie. And I think that that's just such a great little thing, this Marion and... Indy looking at Marion, and obviously she's the keeper of the medallion that he covets. Well, I surely have not noticed that, but, you know, a movie like this, I could put it on right after the credits start rolling. I could start it again, and I would not mind. So I'm going to rewatch this and definitely look harder for that, because that is kind of awesome. I, I don't think I've ever seen that in, in my—I'm just so distracted by how— amazing everything else is that must have slipped through my fingers one thing i noticed because i was you know paying a little more attention this time is there's stuff that's recurring throughout the movie or they they set something up and then it comes back later there was like a lot of that which i know you guys probably know the more accurate term you know for what that might be called but setting stuff up and uh you know having there be a payoff i know is a sign of a movie being of higher quality definitely <laughs> surely surely it's crazy how tight everything is i mean if you even if you look at it in a in a microcosm of just something like one of the great scenes in this movie the entire bar sequence going from when we meet marion all the way through the bar burning to the ground the fact that marion can drink anyone under the table the headpiece to the staff of raw marion and indy's relationship marion setting the headpiece on the candle which gets called back later a bunch of things that t I, I, I can't even list how many things are set up in that sequence. And then obviously a lot of them are also paid off in that sequence, but there is not a second of storytelling that happens in that bar that is not important or like a great joke or telling you something about the characters. There was one cool little part in that whole sequence that stuck out to me this time where she's holding it. She tilts it towards a candle. The candle kind of flickers when the Eye of Ra is pointing at it, setting up the power of what they're dealing with. I thought that that was a cool little moment there. I never caught that. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't think I have either. I, I There's so many details I need to go back for on this one. I'm very excited already to rewatch. There's just so much. Throughout the rest of the course of the movie, you know, there's like wind or storms or clouds, like any time they make more progress in getting closer to the arc, it seems like. So that, that seemed, at least that was the first point I noticed where there's like supernatural power evident. Mm -hmm. Going off of that point, the storytelling in Indiana Jones is so iconic and lives so vividly in my mind that it's hard to imagine what it would have been like, even with all of the supernatural setup, to just be like, oh yeah. And then God smites all the Nazis and melts their face. <laughs> and that's makes the them explode. Like movie. Runs electricity through them, linking them like the wonder weapon in zombies, <laughs> and then explodes their heads and melts their faces. It is pretty crazy to think about just the implication of Christian God is real, and he will absolutely kill you if you mess with his power it is the craziest thing to wrestle with especially considering the implications of the temple of doom and what yeah. that means in terms of spirituality in this universe i think that what we're learning is that the baha'i faith is the one true faith in the indiana jones universe <laughs> everything is true including aliens and, all, and everything else <laughs> Time travel, I guess I'm only guessing for the Dial of Destiny. Time travel's a factor. Yeah, something else I noticed this time is that 
at the beginning when they're with those government guys and they've got the book and they're looking at the picture. I noticed on this rewatch that like what's going on in the picture is the exact ceremony that they're doing at the end. Oh yeah, I do love finding those little pieces, especially when it reconnects to my new best friend Rene Belloc and his his <laughs> weird respect for all of this stuff. He's got the chest piece with all the gems. He's got the ceremonial outfit. He knows the ancient Hebrew prayers that are going along with this. And that goes back to, I think he should have been in more of these movies. Even thinking about Marion kind of, not like warming up to him, but, you know, having a better time with him, like with Belloc than like the actual Nazis that are there to hurt her. But I do also love watching him just get absolutely wrecked by the power of God <laughs> in, on that island. It is, it is satisfying. I'm going to say it like as a kid, I was always like, Indiana Jones is nothing like Belloc. He's he's just blinding him up. Him up, him up. <laughs> That's why I want but, them to be on the same but, stuff again, because they are the same, damn they it. Are, the only thing, really, truly, I think the only thing that separates Belloc from Indiana Jones is the fact that he will work with the Nazis. Oh, scumbag Indiana Jones. I do love to see it. I hope we see more in the Dial of Destiny at some point. But, I mean, it's Disneyed up. They're not going to let him be, like, a weird, genuinely bad guy. I mean... By the end of this movie, he is penitent. He doesn't need to see the arc open. He is willing to, to sacrifice elements of, of the hunt. And, obviously, by the time Last Crusade rolls around, he's just, like, a, he's, he's, a, he's a much more chill guy. I'll say that. I mean, he's still kind of a scumbag, but... <laughs> a little bit. A little lesser so. Certainly. Certainly lesser so. But a couple of things I wanted to hit about Raiders before we move on to Temple of Doom, which I know we're going to have a lot to say about. The monkey see Kyle, perfect joke. No notes. Um, <laughs> no I don't notes. know how many takes that they had to do to get that monkey to do that. But the perfect. He had it ready before they cast him. It was like a weird, problematic pre-cancel culture. That monkey made it through Raiders without getting called out. The map room scene. They took what could be the most boring scene in the movie and made it one of the most memorable scenes in the movie. It's just a guy standing in a room while the sun rises, and that's it's it. It's bone chilling. It is it is tingling, that scene. And I mean, absolutely 100% all props to the Lord God himself, John Williams, which we haven't even mentioned yet, that he is, crea he is making these movies what they are. Like, 50%, it's all John Williams. And, th and that scene specifically, he shines. This is the first movie that I remember thinking, I really like the music in this movie. Uh, I definitely had an ancient vinyl record of that soundtrack that I bought for, like, a dollar and a half with a disintegrating cardboard like <laughs> sleeve that it came in, but um, I bet if I, honestly, if I look through my records, I might still have it. And you bet your ass, little kid Seamus was playing that first theme track and just whipping a cowboy hat and whip around. Like my god, I actually have a original demo disc that they sent to record stores. What of the Raiders of the Lost Ark soundtrack? That is an absolute collector's item. That is genuinely very cool. I don't know where it that might is. be I worth some money. It. Yeah, for real. It yeah. belongs in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing we'll talk about in Temple of Doom: the way the themes play together, I think, is so intricate and cool. But the last thing that I gotta note is. Tote is a great villain, hands down. Like, he's just so scary and creepy and weird. And again, that bar scene is so scary. Like, as an adult, I'm like, that's so scary. He's a menacing man. And I I, I don't know what he ever really did later in his career. But, like... Old Lacey. 
I hope he wasn't typecast, but I'm like, he's really good at playing that scary, intimidating leather trench coat role. So, I mean, if he did it again, I wouldn't be that upset, but... Man, he is he is fantastic in this. The thing I really love watching as an adult, he's so over all of this. Like, he doesn't care. <laughs> like, when, when Indiana Jones pops up with a bazooka and he's like, I'm going to blow up the Ark and everybody's standing down there. He's like, oh, good. I can sit down and, and fan myself with my hat. Like, that's his first, he's not concerned in the least. He's just trying to get back to Berlin, dog. This is not his cup of tea <laughs> like he laughs when the tablets aren't in the arc oh yeah he's he, he has right. like a weird i told you so kind of attitude in that scene until he is maybe killed in the most horrific way anyone has ever been killed on screen his gargled screams while choking on his own liquid face is <laughs> the most messed up thing of all time I don't know if I've ever heard that sentence come out of anyone's mouth before, but that's exactly how he would have to describe that. It really is. You can tell he's alive to taste his own melted face. It is the craziest thing to think about. The effects for the melting face are unparalleled. If they put all the money into the face melting, I would not be surprised. Oh, uh, the guy who doesn't care? Let's have his face melt up. He gets the worst one, and he cared the least. Why did God say, you know what? No. This guy was at the bar, he burned his hand, he's playing around. He's the creepiest looking guy, he does the bit with the nunchucks that turn into a coat hanger, he that, gets his face melted. I think actually that's my one complaint with this movie, that joke doesn't really work, I don't it think. It doesn't, what is, the, what is the threat? Like, is he really busting out the nunchucks in that scene? What are they supposed to be? Uh, Spielberg, I think... I remember correctly that Spielberg did that joke in another movie and it didn't work in that movie. And I was like, so Spielberg, <laughs> why did you think it was going to work in this one? Oh, Because we're going to get to Temple of Dune soon and there are jokes that he recycles but actually yeah. does in a different way that I actually do not remember and love now. But that is not one of them. I guess the final note on Tote is he is the Nazi that the other Nazis are like, this guy's messed up. Like, this guy's the guy we call. <laughs> this when... guy, Nazis. He is the Nazi in charge. <laughs> yeah. But what do you guys think about taking a little jaunt over to a different god smiting different people that are not Nazis specifically? Sounds like a plan. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's a weird one. It is a weird movie. None of the three of us can deny that that is a weird movie, even in the weirdness that is Indiana Jones. They are all weird. Mm -hmm. But I'm a little on your side, Garrett. Better than I remembered as a kid. This was the one that was like, my parents were like, we can watch Raiders or we can watch Last Crusade, but Temple of Doom is a horror movie that we cannot show to young children. Because it really is a horror movie in a lot of ways. And that's why I think a lot of it worked more for me now rewatching it as an adult. But what do you guys think? For me, the biggest problem with this is it's trying to be two things, and sometimes in the same scene. It is simultaneously trying to be the scariest, darkest Indiana Jones movie, and also the goofiest Indiana Jones movie, and that those two things should not be coexisting. <laughs> Either be the silly one or be the dark one. Because all Indiana Joneses are silly. All Indiana Joneses are dark. But it is forced to pulsate between these two extremes that are just so incompatible and annoying together. But there are individual moments that are truly great in Temple of Doom. I gotta give him a lot of credit for trying a bunch of stuff that was completely different. You know, because a lot of times sequels are like... 
I mean, you guys know for sure, you know, sequels often are just a rehash of the original movie. They're just trying to grab some additional cash. They're definitely trying a lot of different stuff here, not the least of which being having it being based on a completely different belief system that's probably (laughs) unknown to uh, the Western audience. It writes itself in some corners. With, I'm sure some of that was intentional because they are playing it pretty fast and loose with Eastern religion, as it were. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I agree with you, Sean. It is really cool that unlike a certain other movie that we're going to talk about next week and not the one that you might think I would be shading right now, <laughs> this one does not play it safe and does not just be like, hey, all your favorite characters are back and we're doing the same adventure again, but different. That opening, opening is incredible. That opening is so, so good. good. <laughs> because, first of all, you just have the straight cold open of the movie going from, oh, it's a gong, or we have some kind of weird, like, Chinese ritual right now. Oh, Indiana Jones, we're in, are we in a weird temple? Into, it's a musical number, and not only is it a musical number, but it's anything goes in Chinese, but it's also like a Bubsley Berkeley musical. Like, all rules are completely <laughs> thrown out. There are no physics in this universe. It, like, cuts to a Broadway, and you're like, what is happening? What what movie am I in right now? And it's a really good musical. The choreo is good. It's shot very well. That vintage 30s dress that they had to, like, yeah. that was one of a kind. It cost thousands of dollars to recreate. Of course, you transition from that, which is great, and pure pulp and everything, into the outstanding James Bond intro, the closest this franchise ever gets to James Bond, even though it's the one without Sean Connery in it. I was drowning in how much James Bond is in that intro. Even just the white tux, his attitude of it all. He's got shooters out there that we don't know about, that he's got, like, backup. The quiet tabletop standoff with the lazy Susan. This was the first time I've seen this movie since I watched all of the James Bond movies. And this scene is completely different after having seen those. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. Boiling it down to, like, secret poison antidote chase. He's running with the gong that's getting shot with a Tommy gun. It's so good. It's so amazing. Chinese gangster in the nightclub with a Tommy gun is something that is so great that it's in an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, dude. And one of the best OG Lego sets is that intro stuff. I really honestly just wish that this whole movie were the movie that it starts out as because every Indiana Jones movie begins with a mini adventure, obviously, just like most James Bond movies do. But I think what's crazy about this one is it's not just a mini adventure. We are dropped into the third act of a movie that we did not get to see the rest of. And there are these crazy villains that Bond has a storied history with that they're referencing like we know what they're talking about. Woo is there, and we care. Like, when he dies, it's like oh. when a character dies at the end of a movie, you're like, no, woo! I go first in the, I was weeping. That is the saddest <laughs> thing I have ever seen. And Why doesn't Short Round ask about him when he gets in the car? <laughs> oh, yeah, Short, Short Round and him, they like, have a history. They don't like each other. Only I can be Indiana Jones's adopted Chinese son. You are too old. I'm short round. And then he hits I mean, he her. just like comes through the window, through the roof of the car with this blonde lady that he's never met. <laughs> Doesn't have the guy that was presumably with him earlier. And he just drives off, asks no questions. Short round's a baller. Short he round really is, is. He is a true boss. He's in charge for so much of this movie in the parts that he is in. He's like the guy running the show somehow. He ends up being the key character in the key moment later on. I think the thing that's really honestly great about this movie is, I mean, Short Round is 
fantastic, right? I've got lots of complaints with almost everything about this movie. Short Round almost completely works. I think Kihi Kwan is amazing. Academy Award winner, Kihi Kwan. Rightfully so. God bless him. He is fantastic. And I love that Short Round's arc has nothing to do with, like, he's a kid, so he's got to learn to grow up and be competent. No, Short Round starts this movie as an equal to Indiana Jones, is equally competent to Indiana Jones, and basically spends the entire movie being mini Indiana Jones, which I think is really great, because the real arc that he and Indy both go on over the course of this is not that Short Round is learning to be more competent to earn Indy's respect or anything like that. It's that they are learning to be a father and son dynamic that they are clearly not allowing themselves to be when this movie begins, and that Indy is opening himself up to having friends and love in his life. And if we didn't mention this already, as most people probably already know, this movie is, of course, a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was a really good decision, I think, in retrospect. Yeah, it definitely confused me as a kid a little bit. To be like, what is that? Why isn't he saying literally anything? Like, I just, I guess I just fully ignored the the time, the, the title card of 1935 instead of 1936. But... In, it, it is kind of wild to think about in, like, two years, Indiana Jones does the Temple of Doom and Raiders, and it's just like, he's got to be so tired. Why isn't he Why isn't he taking a break? He's so, he worked that Indiana Jones. Before we get too far off the topic of Short Round, I'd like to talk about his hat, because I had an interesting thing I noticed about it this time. Garrett, stop laughing. I will laugh. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> I'm a big baseball fan. You know, I go to a lot of Cubs games every year. So, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, short rounds wearing a Yankees hat. You know, I'm looking at the hat and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not the Yankees NY. And so I looked into it and uh, he's actually wearing a 20s New York Giants hat. Oh, I I fully and I thought the opposite this entire time. I always assumed it was a Yankees hat because it's Yankees colors, it's NY, but the Yankees NY is like sans serif, whereas if you look at his hat. <laughs> when Kihi Kwan shows up for the after credit scene of Dial of Destiny and is like adult, competent short round, he's tall round now and, and he's going to be wearing, <laughs> he better be wearing the same kind of damn hat or else this is all for nothing. He better be wearing a San Francisco Giants hat because they yeah. were over there by then. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. Or else I'm going to be living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to keep it updated with the times. We're going to New York City in the new one, it looks like, from the trailers. So I oh, feel yeah. like it is very probable that if Short Round shows up, he's wearing a Yankees cap. That is unfortunately probably the way it goes, Sean. So you will have something to be mad about, and you will have called it on this show. Oh, I'm already looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. When Indy is gonna go have sex with Willie, like, tell me what, tell me what <laughs> yeah, happens, dude, bro. Like it's so funny. Yeah, that is a true moment of like bro relationship that they have. That they are truly a ten year old boy and a thirty five year old man who are on the same wavelength. <laughs> Talking about shenanigans before the whole five minutes bit had me really laughing. I I never remember that. Oh really? And as a kid, it fully. It. <laughs> Dude, that made me laugh because as a kid, I never understood the bit. I was like, why are we just fully halting the movie? Why are they counting the minutes? I'm a boy. I don't know why Indiana Jones is an absolute bombshell sex bomb out here in this Indian palace. So it worked for me more this time because as a kid, I also didn't get the bit where he's like, 
feverishly looking for the secret passage. And she's like, Indiana Jones, grope me instead of that statue, please. I'm, he's getting I, all up on that statue. Oh, he's he getting a piece. Yeah, he really is. He, he is sweating looking for that message, going for it hard. Oh, man. Should we talk about Willie Scott? I mean, should we talk about Willie Scott? I feel like that sex scene, or not sex scene, as it were, is the time where you're like, oh, Spielberg's in love with Kate Capshaw, huh? Just, like, the way he shoots her is clearly, like... No, I get you. I get you. So, yeah, it's a very interesting thing. But, yeah, Willie uh, sucks. Willie's a terrible character, and I hate him. Oh, <laughs> uh, you don't want to hear a woman scream, Indy! Over and over again? You don't want to hear that? She works at the beginning. In that situation, I think she is mostly justified. And the whole farce of her trying to get the diamond, I think, works. But, really, the second that Che plane door closes... All of my patience stays on the ground in Shanghai. <laughs> in Shanghai. <laughs> with Dan Aykroyd. All your patience stays with Dan Aykroyd. It's, I think I never remember. It's crazy because back when I was a kid, like, I felt cool for knowing that that was Dan Aykroyd. On VHS and even on DVD, his face, I remember being, like, really obscured and you could not see it at all. And watching this movie on Blu-ray yesterday, I was like, oh, yeah, that's just Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> <laughs> he is British, though, as, as far as I remember, which yeah, is, that is definitely true. what threw me as a kid. He's doing a weird voice. And I'm sure, you know, a Blu-ray on my TV that I could pause is going to look a lot better than whatever 35 millimeter film print most people saw this movie on in 1984. I think it's very fitting that he's in the most batch Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen him in Crystal Skull, if not just for the cross-branding with his Crystal Skull vodka company. <laughs> but, like, I wish he was a sidekick for longer. I wish he got murdered in the Chinese restaurant. Dan Aykroyd, like, at the snake surprise dinner? Like, uh, he's one of the monkey brains. <laughs> <laughs> it would chilled Dan Aykroyd brains for dessert. Mm, delicious. Let's talk about maybe my least favorite part of this movie. I don't know. Is it the... I mean... What? I least think, favorite? No, dude. It's... Well, one... Like, even ignoring the fact that it's just, like, super racist, which it is. And, okay, that is that is a fact. But on top of that, I think it perfectly encapsulates the entire problem I have with this movie, which is, at one end of the table, you have the cool, scary movie going on, where Indy's like, I thought we were talking about folklore, and you know, all that stuff. <laughs> right, like, right. That's cool. That's a great part of that scene. Then at the other end of the table, you've got the Marx Brothers and Willie Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Opening up her eyeball soup that is like, it's like suddenly eyeball soup. Like the eyeballs emerge at the right time. It's so, I just hate it. I just, it's so stupid. I'm over it. And by that part of the movie, I'm really over it because we just sat through the whole, we're going through the jungle and there's a vampire bat and I'm screaming and there's a monkey and I'm screaming and there's an elephant and I'm screaming. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh my God. When they camp out at night and it literally is just like five things in a row that make her shriek and run around. Well, Indian short run are playing cards and they're doing a funny bit about cheating at cards, but she's like overlapping all the fun stuff that's happening a lot of the time with that stuff. In terms of my little kid brain who's remembering this movie and being like, how are they showing this? How are they doing this gross live eels inside of the snake? The monkey brains is less gross and that's more of just like, what What are we doing here? This is so goofy. My little kid brain is totally digging on it, especially the single snippet of Short Round and Willie kind of bonding in this movie 
because they're each doing their own separate things by themselves and with Indiana Jones, but that's like the only time that they're like, what do we get ourselves into here with this old Indiana Jones that we're following? Plus the shot that made me cackle as a child where Short Round gets scared of the dancers coming down the hallway. I that do still, like, I do that like still that. makes me laugh, goddammit, it really does. Doesn't he kind of run away from them, too? Oh, yeah, he's, like, being chased for real. He's, like, he's <laughs> flipping out, because they're coming out of the damn walls, guys. They're everywhere in that shot. Maybe when they were filming, they didn't tell him about that. <laughs> they were just, like... That was a candid Kihikwan, like, oh, my God, are we rolling? What is happening? Short Round is still a little boy. He's a cute little boy who doesn't want to drink voodoo blood, and he's sad that his adopted street rat dad is under the influence, you know? Like, it really feels intense. The bug tunnel. That is hard to watch for me even now. That maybe has a big thing to do with, like, my fear of bugs as an adult. It's like watching them crunch on cockroaches and foot-long centipedes crawling up Willie's legs. I hate even thinking about it. That comes right after we're going to have sex scene goes immediately into brutally breaking a man's neck by hanging him from a ceiling fan with a whip. Oh my god, I forgot (laughs) about that, dude. Sean, were you remembering that that man was about to be swung in a circle, like, casually? That messed me up. Oh yeah, definitely. That's definitely a memorable moment from when I was a kid. Actually, I was, like, thinking about it before that part happened, and I was looking for him, like, in the background, and he's actually, like, in the background against the wall for that whole scene before that. Is he really? Yeah. That's crazy. He blends in really well. You'd have to really be looking for him, but he's there. There were definitely some moments like that where I'm like, this is kind of like a Scooby-Doo sort of thing here. They're like, ooh, we're going up to the spooky castle. You know, there's been spooky stuff happening. (laughs) They really do be going up to the spooky castle. I mean, come on. They they get sent off with like, there's strange things happening at the evil temple. And they're like, well, I guess, I guess we'll go check it out. I mean. My thesis for this movie is that I think it is the truest adaptation of a serial like a 30s yeah, serial it starts in the middle of a storyline just like a 1930s serial would like come back to the theaters next month to see if indiana jones gets the peacock's eye diamond from lao che and then you go in and they have a sp- i think the scene that immediately precedes the dinner scene where they're all just standing around talking on a sound stage i'm like this is just you know it would be one shot in a 30s serial there would be a bunch of continuity errors <laughs> And it's so goofy and it's so pulpy. I mean, the Temple of Doom is by far the pulpiest, goofiest name in the entire franchise. And that's with the name Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in it. So, (laughs) (laughs) But then again, it really is a Temple of Doom, isn't it? They pull that man's heart out of his chest. We have yet to talk about that, you know? I think it's an accurate title. (laughs) (laughs) It's just shocking how Doom-filled this temple really is. Child slave labor, human sacrifices, evil gods pulling hearts out of chests and sending them into the actual pit of actual hell. It is pretty intense. The visual effect of him, like, putting his fingers into the guy's chest and taking out the beating heart is insane. Especially, I mean, for the time even. Like that scene later where he's, you know, right up by Indy on the the bridge, you know, and he's like reaching for his chest. You know, you could almost imagine like the fingers (laughs) going into his chest. Yeah, they set that up really, really well. Yeah. 
so good. So good. That's a quick question I want to bring up, but not get too derailed. Is him on the bridge the, the sexiest he is in this movie? He's really good looking once his sleeves start coming apart, you know? Yeah, I think it probably, I think that is probably the hottest Indiana Jones ever is, period, if I'm being honest. Ever? Like, ever? Because he's real handsome in Raiders, but he is like holding that machete post cult hypnosis. He's really good. In the light of day on that bridge, love him to death. So good. The last time I watched these movies was during the pandemic when everybody had tons of time. So I watched a bunch of the special features. Harrison Ford was talking about how they had him on a workout routine leading up to this movie and how they had him doing all this stuff. And he was on a special diet and they did all the shirtless scenes first, like right at the beginning when he was at the peak there. Because <laughs> there I guess go. like by the end of the movie, it had started to fade already, like when they were getting done <laughs> filming. Well, he got really messed up making this movie. He he had like a hernia or something or something. Oh my gosh, I mean, really? He got oh, really? injured. I think during the scene where the assassin comes into his hotel room. And so pretty much any time you don't see his face in this movie, and actually I caught a couple of times where you do see his face in this movie, he's played by his stunt double, Vic Armstrong, who does, to be fair, bear a pretty striking resemblance to Harrison Ford. Wow, they did that really well cuz I actually didn't notice too much of that. I mean, there were a couple times in Raiders where I, truck chase-wise, I was able to sneak a peek at the stunt double guy's face, but not in this one as much as I, I thought it would be, because there are a ton of stunts in this movie that I didn't remember. The bridge alone is one of the greatest Indiana Jones moments. It really encapsulates that character perfectly. He is so in over his head. It is an inescapable situation. What is he going to do? He's going to cut the bridge down. Oh. <laughs> slowly creeping at him from both sides you know what he is making it up as he goes along because he's he's going for broke i love him beating up the guy down in the mine and that he looks so angry during that same shot i love short round just absolutely wailing on the prince like in the background yeah dude yes (laughs) he's going ham on him Short round in the prince. Yeah, I do like that weird beat down. Because that prince is also like a really weirdly scary bad guy when he's under the spell. Like using the voodoo doll to stab Indiana Jones. I really hate the brainwashing stuff in this movie. The entire time that Indy is under the influence. Like I know you have to do something like that for a beat to go into the third act. But just cut that whole part of that movie. Let them sacrifice Willie. Good. nope he drank the magic blood out of the corpse head so like he's just he's just evil for a while the production design on that on that corpse head though pretty good like oh pretty good looking disgusting absolutely i the tongue of that corpse is like the little spigot where the blood comes out it's like curled up a little bit it's truly gross we do need to wrap up on time here boys I want to do a quick rundown. I've got a bunch of things that I want to talk about that I just, I'm just going to rapid fire bullet point them. Undoing Indy's arc from Raiders means that he gets to be a real bastard again. Like, he's straight up <laughs> going to kill this innocent woman in the nightclub if he does not get his diamond. And I believe him. You didn't get to that episode in The Young Adventures yet, but that peacock's eye is important, Garrett. The end of the opening sequence ends with a plane going into the sunset, just like it does in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is something I never caught before. I really like the shot of the raft falling that's like 20 seconds of just (laughs) the raft falling. Because if that movie came out today, we'd be up in the raft with them and it'd look all CGI and weird and there'd be air effects and stuff. 
And honestly, it's way more thrilling to just go, Raft goes out of plane, onto mountain, one shot, that's it. On the topic of the raft, real quick, when I was a kid, you know, like in Scouts, we went whitewater rafting one time, and I was like, oh man, this is just like Indiana Jones. But then I was like, wait, there is no cushion at all on the bottom of this thing. (laughs) It is just canvas. I was like, that scene makes no sense at all. I like how he just completely glossed over the fact that there would be three dead bodies on a raft instead of like, (laughs) wow, I can't believe we got out of the plane with the raft. Like, it makes less than no sense. But nuke fridge is all I have to say with that. And we will do more on that next week. We will talk more about nuke fridge next week. That kid that escapes from the mines and comes back to the village... That kid is a hero. Think about how that kid had to get there. It was not close. Like, they rode elephants. They rode their three cool concentric elephants for a while to get over oh, to yeah. the Maharaja's palace. Jungles it, through the bats, through <sighs> through everything. You, you really got to go up in there. He had to escape the Temple of Doom, which is something it took Indiana Jones several days to do. Then he had to walk the entire way back to his tiny little village without dying. While clutching the single clue that would get Indiana <laughs> Jones's ass to the palace to save the day. That's like, true. it is heroic indeed. We could go for so much longer on these, and I'm sure we'll roll back a lot of this next week to talk more about these two specific movies in the grand scheme of the indie-verse. But what do you guys think about wrapping it up and moving it on over to the reference this week? Works for me. For today's pop culture reference, we're doing something a little bit differently here. As usual, when we invite a guest on, we also ask them if there's anything that they want to share with us for the pop culture reference segment. And Sean has prepped his own pop culture reference, which I will let him go ahead and and take Seamus and, and me and all you folks listening on a journey. Yes, on a journey we indeed are going. We have just been talking about one of Steven Spielberg's most well-known works, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about something that you probably don't know a whole lot about. The Medal of Honor series, particularly the early games. As you may know, Steven Spielberg was one of the founding members of DreamWorks. So in 1995, DreamWorks SKG was founded, SKG being the first initials of the founders of the company, The S being for Spielberg. At one point, Spielberg decided that he would like to try making video games because he had enjoyed playing video games throughout the 70s, playing those arcade games, that sort of thing. So he began negotiations with Microsoft to create a video game studio, and that became DreamWorks Interactive. They went on to make several games. Most of them were not very successful. They made a game called Trespasser, which was supposed to be a sequel, sort of, to Jurassic Park The Lost World. And it is considered to be among the worst video games ever made. (laughs) I've never heard of it. While he was making Saving Private Ryan, the legend has it that he saw one of his kids playing Goldeneye, the James Bond game. So that one was considered to be like the first person shooter standard at the time. So he thought, you know what, I'm going to do a Saving Private Ryan sort of realistic World War II video game. So they began developing Medal of Honor. Throughout the process, that was criticized by the Medal of Honor organization itself. You know, they were pretty unhappy that they were taking something so serious and important and just making it into a video game. They took a lot of care to really make sure that they were being respectful to the history of World War II. 
eventually they made Medal of Honor, where you play as Jimmy Patterson, an OSS agent. It's a lot more like a spy game than it is a modern first-person shooter. A lot of the missions, you're infiltrating some kind of Nazi setup, and you're blowing stuff up, you're messing things up for them. There's some levels where you walk in disguised as a Nazi officer, so instead of a gun, you have papers that you hold out. So this game was very well received at the time. The AIs were very advanced, like the enemy AIs. If you shoot different parts of their bodies, they react differently and have different animations depending on where the bullets actually hit. And it ended up being very respectful to the history. DreamWorks Interactive ended up making three more games. Medal of Honor Underground was the next one, which was also on the original PlayStation, like the first Medal of Honor. That one, you play as a member of the French Resistance. She starts out in Paris with the fall, the Nazis take over, and then you go through all these different areas. Some interesting ideas that Spielberg had had come back in that one. And then there are two more. There's Medal of Honor Frontline and Medal of Honor Allied Assault, which also were made by DreamWorks Interactive. The series went on after that, but the studio got bought out and ended up going somewhere else. And there weren't a lot of the original ideas and team members. So I personally think that the series drops off after those first few And obviously, as I'm sure you all know, Call of Duty really takes over mid-2000s. Apparently, Call of Duty in the original file was called MOH Killer, which it did go on to do, as it turned out. Something else that you guys might not know, Michael Giacchino wrote original scores for all of these games as well. So the music in these games is phenomenal. So that's a little bit about Medal of Honor, a little passion project of Steven Spielberg, something that you guys may not have known about. Medal of Honor was definitely a huge part of my youth gaming. I had that triple pack of Frontline, Rising Sun, and European Assault on the PS2. And I was so happy when you said Frontlines was one of the Spielberg ones, because I, for one, had no idea that he even had any hand in that realm. To this day, I will think about those old Medal of Honors way more fondly than pretty much any modern Call of Duty that I've ever played. If you play Frontlines alone, you will see the most Saving Private Ryan-esque storming the Normandy beaches intros, and it seems to me that a lot of those really early ideas of, like, the original Medal of Honor, like the disguise missions, the OSS undercover things, definitely bled more into Frontlines as the series went on and were were perfected in ways that I will literally never forget for the rest of my gaming days. So that was really interesting and and way more informative about a game series that I truly love than I thought it would be. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed that. Based on my research, it seemed like Spielberg was like directly a producer of the original one, and then he was much less involved in the rest of them, but a lot of his ideas, you know, are still present. I think, personally, Rising Sun is where they start to drop off. I mean, that one is still all right. European Assault is fine, but doesn't quite Front- have that spark. Frontlines is the last best, I feel like, because I, I yeah. enjoy those other two as well, but that one was truly the peak. And that opening is like pretty much right from Saving Private Ryan, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Watching a dude armless walking around in a daze, it disturbed me long before I actually saw Saving Private Ryan. So definitely powerful stuff. Well, Sean, if it weren't for you, I would not know anything about the Medal of Honor series. And I'm very grateful that a little while ago you bought me my own copy of Medal of Honor Underground, which is shockingly great considering how limited the ps1 version would be technology wise like you said it, it is really ahead of its time well of course i'm glad to have uh brought you guys some additional information on this series that you both uh seem to enjoy i'm glad to hear that 
Absolutely, man. Thanks again. Thank you very much. But with that, gentlemen, what do you say we kick it on over and save the rec center to wrap it up this week? Let's save it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly rec recommendations. Sean, since you are our guest, I would love to pass it over to you and hear what you have to recommend for us this week. Of course, of course. So earlier this week, actually, while I was at work, which is maybe not something I should tell everyone, but I read The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, the short story written in 1922 by F. Scott Fitzgerald, who you may be familiar with if you went to any high school in the United States. (laughs) Of course, the author of The Great Gatsby. So I read this short story. Uh, It starts in 1860 in Baltimore. Benjamin Button is born. His father goes into the delivery room and there's not a baby there. There's a crusty old man who is already able to talk and has the tastes of an old man. You know, he's getting into his dad's cigars and all that and he tries to force him into uh, being a little boy. So it just follows his life aging backwards at the very end of it. He, uh, He fades into being, you know, a toddler and then a baby and everything. I have not actually seen this movie, so this was the first time I've actually, like, consumed this story. I found it to be a a very well-written little piece. There was a lot of humor at times, for sure. And then also a nice bit of existential dread towards the end, because (laughs) he gets to a certain point where he realizes he's aging backwards and that he knows when he's going to die, and there's that whole element for the latter part of the book. So I know Zoomers love some good existential dread. So I know this story is pretty old, but I think you may be uh, quite delighted by it. I was able to read it as a PDF off of the Wikipedia page, so it's not very hard to get. One, I didn't know that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote Benjamin Button. And I've also never seen that movie, so I would would really hope that they stuck with the whole, like, Dad walks into the delivery room and Benjamin Bunn's like, all right, Pops, where's the cigars? I, I kind of super love that. And I, 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 will, I will read this short story. That sounds really interesting and probably more easily consumed than a three and a half hour movie, I assume is what that is. This book probably took me half an hour to read the whole thing. I think it has like 11 or 12 chapters, but they're very short. So I do like that movie, but I am definitely interested. I have somehow never read that short story, which is unlike me, because I love F. Scott Fitzgerald, and again, I did enjoy that movie, and it seems like an easy read. But Garrett, what do you have to save the rec center this week? Well, I'm going to be on brand, Seamus, and probably you could have already guessed this, but I'm going to go ahead and rec center the Young and Neon Jones Chronicles, which are now streaming on Disney+, Plus. so they're not as crazy and accessible as they used to be. It's a weird thing where there were two different young indies. There was, the, like, little kid indie and teenage indie, and when they originally aired them, one was a little kid indie, one was a teenage indie, back to back to back. Now, they have edited them to be all in chronological order, so you start with little kid indie, and then you watch all little kid indies, and then you graduate to teenage indie. They have stitched every two episodes together, so there'll just be a midway point in this 90-minute quote-unquote episode of Young Indiana Jones where you're like, oh, we're going to a completely different adventure now. And some of them link together better than others, but I genuinely 
enjoy that series. It definitely has an edge of edutainment to it where they're like, hey, the Greeks and Lawrence of Arabia and everything. And isn't it cool that young Indiana Jones Forrest gumped his way through early 20th century <laughs> history? Oh, he really did, that Indiana Jones. But if you can get past that element of it and some of the slowness and some of the brown face in one of the, se- in one of the oh, episodes, boy. then it really is... A genuinely enjoyable time for anybody who likes Indiana Jones. Now streaming on Disney Plus, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Get on it. Now that it's on Disney Plus, I don't have to keep looking at my unplayable USB drive in shame that you gave me with the entire series on it. For the life of me, I could not figure out how to put it on my TV and play <laughs> the damn thing. So now that it's just kind of accessible at the click of a button, I really do want to get back on that. As a kid, I had the VHS tape of The Legend of the Peacock's Eye, which is one of the way later ones that obviously ties into Temple of Doom. But I want to go through the whole gamut. I want to run the whole thing. It looks really fascinating. It was definitely iconic when you showed up to my Super Bowl party with the hard drive with it on there. And I was like, (laughs) oh, sweet. And like set it on my desk. And you were like, no, download it now so I can take this home. (laughs) Uh, and then give it to me, presumably, the one that's in my hand right now. <laughs> that may well be it. <laughs> but now we all have it, boys. We got to get caught up on indie. We got to learn how this little boy becomes the world's biggest scumbag slash grave robber. It really doesn't seem like that many episodes when you look at them all together there on the Disney Plus page. But Seamus, what do you have for us to close us out? Unsurprisingly, Garrett, I have a horror video game to share uh, with the world. I, I know. But this is one that I think is right up your little yellow belly alley, Mr. Garrett Strother. Bloodwash on every system that you can think of. It is a Jowlo horror inspired, low polygraphic PS1 style first person horror game that takes. All of an hour to complete. A lot of the charm of this game comes from how purposefully low-budget it feels. It feels like you're really stepping into some random low-budget horror film about a serial killer slasher in the bad part of town. It's 100% atmosphere. It's 100% genuinely very unsettling there are a couple key jump scares that kind of keep it in the family of horror but i really bought it for the atmosphere for the music for the low graphics attention that they're putting on it and it is worth every cent of the five dollars that i spent on this one i couldn't recommend it enough it's from this group of game developers and publishers that are very specifically making ps1 style games that play like very modern games so it's again mostly about the audio and visual styling to make it feel very old very vhs very rca cables is that what they're called whatever whatever that is even you could handle it my beautiful friend garrett strother i know you're not a horror man even though you lied to me last week and said you'd play madison it's too (laughs) scary for you man i promise you but this one This one is all you. Sean, I don't know how you do with horror, but I would recommend this to anyone. Well, then there you go. This is all yours, my friend. It's on sale right now on PlayStation. It is well worth the money. Very short, very beautiful time. 
I love horror, and I just spent like five minutes talking about all my PS One nostalgia. So you there know, there you I'm go, in on that one. dude. I that's there you go. That's for you, Sean. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. Sean, I am so glad that you agreed to come on the show with us. I would love if you could shout out, even though you'll be on next week for Last Crusade and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where people can find you on you know your content uh, channels. Where, where should people go for more Sean? How could I do something like this without shilling my YouTube channel? That wouldn't be very <laughs> YouTuber of me at all. <laughs> my channel is called uh, Sean Till Dusk. I have been making uh, videos that are sort of similar to the storytime animation genre. Think like, you know, the odd ones out, Jaden animations. That sort of thing is what inspired me. I don't actually animate them. I call it semi-animated, but uh, they're still a good time. Uh, you get to hear me tell some stories. There's a couple about when I was a scout. There's uh, a couple about me working at uh, Medieval Times. You know, there's some good stuff out there. I have not been posting nearly as consistently as Garrett and Seamus have been, unfortunately, but I... Uh, do intend on continuing onward. I'm actually going to be soon starting up my second channel, which will be called Dusk Till Sean. And that is going to have much shorter and much weirder and much more unfocused content. So that'll be coming up shortly. I love your channel, of course. I've, I've been a subscriber from day one. You might have been the first one, actually. It's quite possible. <laughs> that is very possible. A real OG. Go over till... Sean Till Dusk, and enjoy some very quality, semi-animated video content. But if you want to reach Pop Culture Reference, you can tweet us, find us on TikTok and Instagram at PCR underscore podcast. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, do all the other things. Subscribe, please. Really helps the show out. And next week, as I previously mentioned, we will, of course, be having Sean back on as we round out our, our nice little box set of Last Crusade and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Very excited to talk about that. It's going to be a weird one. I think a lot of the things that we talked about this week will echo on over into our conversations next week. So this will be an interesting little, little pair of episodes, I think. And I'm very excited to have Sean as our first two-time consecutive guest. Me too. I'm very excited to get into the weirdness of it all and can't wait to talk with you again, Sean. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I certainly am honored to be the first two-time consecutive guest, and I greatly look forward to uh, talking about these two very different movies next week. And everybody else, we'll see you next week. Adios, Satipo. Satipo.